Andrew Womack Ministries presents part nine of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape number 116 in our Life for Today Bible Commentary series. And on this tape, we continue our teaching through the book of Ephesians. We're now in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. And this is found on page 1130 through 1135 of our printed materials. In Ephesians chapter 5, I need to just real quickly back up and say that um, in the previous verses, which we covered on our last tape, he had made the point about walking away from the old man and his deeds and beginning to live a godly lifestyle. And uh, he was saying, like in verse 8, he said, For you were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In verse 9, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And verse 10, Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. We talked about all of this basically as stressing holiness, not for the purpose of acceptance with God, but because we now have been accepted with God. And God's life is on the inside of us. We should make it manifest. And so in verse 11, where we begin today, this is just a continuation of the same things that he was saying. You need to take it in that context. And in verse 11, he says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. I think it's important to recognize here that the Greek word that was used for fellowship here is really a rare word for this term fellowship. The word was only used, the Greek word was only used three times in the New Testament. This is the only time out of the three that it was translated fellowship. It was also translated partaker in Romans chapter, or excuse me, Revelations chapter 18 and verse 4. And that really is the way that it is used here. The common word for fellowship, the common Greek word is koinonia, and it was used 18 times in the New Testament. So the point that I'm getting at is when it says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, this doesn't mean that you totally have to shun any person who is an unbeliever, have nothing to do with them, but rather it's literally talking about partaking of their evil deeds. And again, I believe you can see that in Revelation 18:4, where the Lord told his people to come out from among this ungodly religious system that you be not partakers of her sins. And that word partakers, there's this exact same word that was translated fellowship here in Ephesians 5.11. And so here, this is talking about not just association. Like, there are people that have taken passages of Scripture like this and have basically become monks and have separated themselves totally from the world. And that is not the example that we see Jesus living at all. Matter of fact, Jesus, one of the accusations that his critics had against him was that he was a friend of publicans and sinners. Jesus went into the homes of people that were considered sinners. He had a woman who was a prostitute come and wash his feet with her hair, and while other wanted, others wanted him to shun her, he embraced her, not physically, but spiritually. He, he loved her and, and extended mercy towards her. And he even said himself when he was criticized, he said, it's not the well people that need a physician, but those that are sick. He says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And so Jesus constantly was in contact with unbelievers. You know, the scripture says that we're the salt of the earth and the salt can't do any good if it doesn't get out of the salt shaker. It's got to get out to where something needs to be preserved. I really believe that one of the problems has been is that we have locked ourselves away, not today in monasteries so much, but we have 
uh, excluded ourselves to where we don't really have any contact with the unbelievers. And that is not what this scripture is talking about. When it's saying have no fellowship with the unfruitful works, notice that it didn't say don't have any fellowship with those that do the unfruitful works, but rather it was talking about having no fellowship with the unfruitful works. Don't partake of their deeds. But we do need to be around people who are sinners. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes when people get turned on to the Lord, one of the first things they want to do is get into the ministry and start serving God full time. And, of course, I understand that being in the ministry. I mean, it is a high calling. I certainly am not uh, discrediting that at all. And I am excited about being in the ministry myself. But I see a lot of people who, I mean, it's just synonymous. They think that they can't really serve God unless they're full time in the ministry. And basically what they do is they quit their jobs they get out of the world system as such and come into a church environment where all they do is meet with Christians all day long. And, you know, if every excited Christian did that, there would literally be no witness out in the workplace. And that is not what God has called us to do. And that's not what this verse is advocating. We need people to be out there in ungodly situations. We need people in the military. We need people in government positions, in politics. We need people in all types of situations so that they can release this sanctifying, preserving effect, the light, as these next verses say, that we have to shed on the world. But this verse is advocating doing it in a way that we are not being corrupted by our association with them. And you could argue this other side just as effectively. You really could. You could get in and talk about people who, in an effort to be a witness to others, have actually compromised their belief. They go to parties where they have to uh, compromise and drink socially, or sometimes, you know, drugs are being used, and you put yourself in ungodly situations, and there are Christians who have done this in the name of being a witness for the Lord. And all it is doing is exposing yourself to ungodliness, and you are violating this verse about being a partaker. So it does need to be done in a proper way. This is not something that can be done lightly, but we do have to have contact with the unbelievers. This is not telling us not to... Uh, This is not telling us to shun unbelievers, but it's telling us not to partake of their ungodly works. Here in the 11th verse and the verses following, there really is some instruction about how to do this in a proper way. Like right here in the 11th verse, it says, Don't fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Then the next couple of verses talk about exposing the ungodly deeds by shining the light on it, etc. So I believe that the way you can tell whether your association with unbelievers is the proper type of association as being advocated here is to evaluate whether you are really shining the light of the gospel into this situation or if you are letting the darkness of their deeds overcome you. What I mean by this is that the scripture here says that you're supposed to reprove the ungodly deeds. Now, if you have a relationship with somebody where you are free to speak into their life, and to reprove the ungodly deeds and speak righteousness into it. And if you have that type of a relationship, well, then I believe that that's a decent relationship. If you have a relationship to where you cannot say anything about the Lord, you have no freedom to uh, express your witness at all. They totally forbid you, and all you are being, all that's happening to you is that you are having their ungodliness dumped on you, but you have no opportunity to share your Christian witness with them. Well, then I would say that's an unequal 
situation. Over in Second Corinthians chapter 6, the Lord said not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And, you know, so right there, he didn't say that you couldn't be yoked. He says you can't be unequally yoked. You can't put yourself into a situation where they are ministering their ungodliness and you have no freedom or no right to minister your righteousness. Now, this needs a lot of wisdom, and I could literally spend an hour talking about this. I need to move on, but uh, let me just say that this does not mean that you get up and you blast people, that you just yell at them, you reprove any time anybody does something wrong. That is not what I'm talking about. I have seen people who are obnoxious, offensive, they're critical. You know, every time somebody does something against their standards, they let them have it. And in my estimation, that's the same attitude that the Pharisees of Jesus' day had. I mean, they had a standard of conduct, and they were quick to condemn anybody who walked more than just a prescribed number of steps on the Sabbath day, who didn't wash their hands. But they were missing the attitudes of the heart. They were hypocritical in their judgment. They were self-serving. They were doing this so that they could be exalted in the eyes of people. Their motives were totally wrong. On and on and on it goes. I'm certainly not talking about a pharisaical type of attitude where we come in and criticize others and just are known as a, as a person who criticizes and against everything. But on the other hand, it's certainly wrong for a person to just say, well, I'm just letting my light shine. I'm not saying anything, but they'll see my godly witness. I don't think that that's accurate either. I think that Satan uses that kind of attitude. Because, you know, there's a lot of moral people today. There are a lot of people who are very moral and live a decent life who are not Christians. And if a person doesn't speak up and credit the Lord as the source of their righteousness and of their goodness and of the strength and stability that they have in their life, well, then their lack of saying anything is actually going to give the credit and the glory for their actions to the individual, not to God. I believe that it's a ploy of the devil to get people to say, well, I'm just letting my light shine, but I'm not saying anything. I believe that, yes, we do have to have godly actions. A person who just says that I'm a Christian and, and gives a witness and says, you need to come to know the Lord, and yet here they are bound in all kinds of habits and in anger and in bitterness. If they don't have a life to back it up, that certainly is not a godly testimony. But on the other hand, a person who is just living a righteous life but not giving the credit to God and not telling others about how they can have that righteous life and not warning others against the impending doom that their actions are going to bring into their life. I believe that that's inaccurate, too. There is a right way to minister and speak forth your relationship. Now, you know, I have not always been a preacher. I know that when I go to ministering things like this, one of the criticisms I get is by people who are actually out in the world and they have to go work a job, and they say, well, you just don't understand. It just doesn't work in the real world, as if I somehow or another am not in the real world. Well, I can guarantee you, ministering in a Bible college here, dealing with people and stuff, I deal with unbelievers. But I can go back and give you examples that I haven't always been a preacher, and I used to pour cement for a living. I was exposed to tremendous amounts of ungodliness, on the job. I mean, people that went out and slept with a different woman every night. I was a painter. I was a carpenter. I've been a bricklayer. I've been exposed in all of the construction realm, and I guarantee you it is not fashionable to be a Christian and to have godly values there. And yet I stood, and not only did I live a holy life. Yes, I believe that's important, but you know what? I also spoke, and I was outspoken. 
I didn't condemn people. I mean, some of my very best friends on those construction jobs were lost people. But you know what? I still spoke up and I spoke and stood for righteousness, not only in my actions, but in the things that I said. And I had a relationship with those guys where they respected me. I didn't condemn them. I didn't tell them I hated them. I showed respect for them. I respected their position. Every one of them was older than me and more experienced, and I respected that. We had a good relationship, but I also spoke out when they talked about the ungodly acts that they did. I spoke out against it, and I saw some of these people born again. I really believe that I planted seeds that I wouldn't be surprised if some more haven't been born again since those days. But the point that I'm making is I maintained a relationship to where I could actually call these unbelievers my friend. And yet, I don't believe I ever violated the principle of this verse. I did not have any fellowship with their unlawful deeds. I didn't participate. And not only did I not participate, but I actually spoke out and said what was right. And I did all of these things, yet without doing it in a religious, condemning way. I did the same thing in the Army. And I guarantee you, in the Army, I was under situations where I was exposed to gross ungodliness and terrible things happen, and yet I was able to minister to people in a way nobody, I don't believe, ever came uh, had me come across as condemning and angry and bitter and religious towards them. And yet they not only saw, but they heard a witness. There is a right and wrong way to do this. And again, I could spend more time on this than what I have, but I just wanted to qualify that because I believe people could misunderstand this verse. It's telling us not to partake of ungodly deeds, not to shun the people, not to totally ignore unbelievers, not to treat an unbeliever like the plague so that we don't ever fellowship with them, but at the same time, don't ever put yourself in a position to where you are being more influenced by the ungodly than they are being influenced by you. I would even put another qualification on this, that a very young believer just coming out of something like a dope scene, I wouldn't encourage them to go back to their doper friends and try and witness to them. Regardless of how pure their motives are, they're going to be weak. And when they come into discouragement or something like that, they aren't far enough removed from that situation to really be able to stand. I think that there needs to be an incubation period to where they don't go back and submit themselves unto something. It's very similar to a person after they've gotten over some type of sickness. Did you know that just the common uh, everyday germs that we are... Uh, exposed to the average person with a strong immune system who's healthy will be able to reject those things, such as a cold or, you know, all kinds of things. But a person who has just been sick and they are depleted and that they are in a uh, state where they are susceptible to things, they need to protect themselves for a period of time until they build their strength back up. And I believe that there is an incubation period for a person after they first get born again before they go back into those same situations that at one time had ensnared them. So anyway, there's a lot of qualifications on this, but this is just telling us not to follow through with the actions of the ungodly. This does not mean that you totally shun them and have nothing to do with unbelievers. In verse 12, it says, For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. And boy, this is a radical scripture from uh, the practice that most Christians operate in today. You know, many Christians and even a lot of ministers, they glory in exposing what the devil is doing. And I mean, they I've seen videos where they actually portray ways, things that the devil is doing, ungodly acts, in such a way that it actually 
you know, ministers temptation to the saints. They do this for the shock technique. They do it to uh, motivate Christians to stand against evil. And their, their end result, their motivation may be correct. But I really believe that in a lot of cases that we are glorifying the devil, that we are speaking about things that really you should not be speaking about. This scripture says it is a shame to even speak of those things which are done of them in secret. There are some things that it is shameful to speak about, and that is not the attitude of most people today. Our society believes that we ought to be free and open. We can talk about anything. Now they talk about homosexuality. They go into bestiality. They describe these acts. They talk about things. I mean, there used to be some things which were just off limits. Basically, today, nothing is off limits in our society. And sad to say, the church has adopted a lot of that same attitude. But this scripture is saying that there are certain things that we should not speak about. And when we violate this scripture and when we go to speaking about the ungodliness of the devil and describe it in a graphic detail, etc., did you know you actually can provide Satan with a platform? You actually can give him an opportunity to dump his trash and perversion into the lives of people who otherwise would have never been exposed to it. You know, I'm reminded of one of the sons of a very well-known atheist who has, the son has now become an outspoken born-again Christian and has been ostracized by his parent. And anyway, this son, I heard him say one time that his parent, if um, they came into a town and tried to have, uh, you know, draw a crowd talking about atheist issues, that they wouldn't be able to draw over a dozen or two dozen people. And he cited as an example the convention that they held for atheists, and they advertised it worldwide and only had 100 or 200 people show up. They just couldn't draw that many people. So he says that their parents, you know, if they went in and just tried to draw a crowd on their own, nobody would show up. But what they do, this atheist goes in and challenges some well-known Christian who has some outlet to the media, either a radio or television program. And they say, I want to debate you on Christian issues. And so this Christian sees this as a challenge from the ungodly. He goes on his television radio program, advertises it, says, we need to turn out in force. We need to show up. We need to stand against this ungodliness. And so he rallies the forces, and they have five or 6,000 people show up. And then in the debate, the atheist is now able to dump their poison and their trash and all of their negative things that nobody would have shown up to hear on their own. They are now able to expose it to five or 6,000 Christians who showed up. And, of course, the Christians are definitely prejudiced. They already came there believing in the Lord. But nonetheless, this atheist is able to expose their poison to these people. And it's a ploy of the devil. And, and you see what I'm saying through this is that there's sometimes that we would be better off to just ignore the devil and a lot of the stuff that he's doing. Now, I know that some people are going to get on this and say that, man, that's a, you know... The devil loves us to ignore him. He'll sneak up and stuff. And I am not saying that we should be ignorant. I'm not saying that there is not a place to expose the ungodliness, witchcraft, different things that Satan is doing, etc. But it can be done in a proper way. It can be done in a way that does not glorify the devil and give place to the devil. It does not have to be dramatized. It does not have to be spoken about in such explicit terms that you actually bring temptation and oppression and the, and the demonic realm into it. You can expose the devil in a proper way. 
And I really believe that sometimes today we are actually giving Satan a platform, Christians, ministers, as we stand up and try and expose and say, are you aware of all of the ungodliness going on today? And then we begin to enumerate it. We go into graphic detail and we actually are giving place to the devil. We are actually violating what this scripture says. You can just simply mention that there are things going on. You can say enough so that there is not ignorance in that area. But I think sometimes we go way beyond that. It, the reason for it is, is because it does shock people. It gets their attention. It gets their money. It gets their participation. You can rally people behind you. You can get them into fear. You can get them to thinking that, man, we got to do something right now. But you know what? Those are all manipulative type of things. It is not the proper motivation. We need to be careful how we approach these subjects, and this needs to be one of the guidelines right here, that we don't speak of the things that the ungodly do in secret. Now, you may expose that they are doing some things and mention it, but you don't have to go into detail. You know, an example, now this is this is not a perfect example, but it's a parallel type of situation. Right here in Colorado Springs, a few years back, uh, we had a lot of, demonic activity. When I first moved to Manitou Springs, there were two covens of witches that used to meet and curse me and my ministry on a regular basis. And they would send me cards on Halloween and sign at the witches of Manitou and that they were cursing me and that I'd be run out of town, etc. Well, I stayed there for 14 years and they left, not me. There were stories that Anton LaVey was moving in next door and there was all kinds of witchcraft and demonic activity. And there is some of that stuff here in Colorado Springs. I am not denying that. I know that there is. But the um, Christians really begin to start getting into talking about spiritual warfare and actually glorifying the power that the devil had here in Colorado Springs. And I mean, the Christians were actually promoting Satan and talking about how much power he had. And it got to a point that they actually had a person who claimed to be a human sacrifice at one of the witches' covens, and uh, they escaped somehow, were revived in a hospital. And this person went around to at least a dozen of the spirit-filled churches here in Colorado Springs, giving their testimony, talking about how that they were going to be sacrificed, and uh, talking about how that the... Uh, Witches were planting people in these spirit-filled churches that were standing up and delivering uh, prophecies and saying, thus saith the Lord, and yet they were Satanists. They were demonic people who were giving these testimonies. There was even a guy in a policeman's suit that came to visit one of my friends and came and told him that he was a part of the Colorado Springs Police Department assigned to the demonic or the satanic church movement here in this area and that they had found some sacrifices up in the mountains and parts of animals, etc. And they found a note that this pastor was number one on the list. I was number two on the list of people that the Satan uh, group was going to kill, etc. And all of these things combined so that for a period of time here, I mean, every time you got together with a group of ministers, this is what they were talking about. And they had this woman who had been sacrificed in one of the uh, demonic rituals stand up in their church, gave the Sunday morning service. The Christians needed to be informed about what was going on, etc., etc., etc. And anyway, to make this long story short, we found out that the Colorado Springs Police Department does not have any division to investigate any satanic stuff. This person who posed to be a uh, policeman and came and told us these things was actually 
uh, one of the Satanists themselves that dressed up as a police officer and was trying to do this so that we would disseminate that information and get all of the Christians to talking about how powerful Satan was, etc. We also found out that this girl who was supposedly sacrificed in a demonic activity was actually one of the Satanists herself. And she got the pulpits of a dozen churches in town to stand and let her give her testimony. And she said she had converted to Christianity, but all she did basically was talk about how strong Satan was, how powerful this movement was, how the Christians ought to be afraid. And you know what? I mean, Satan caused a lot of confusion, got a lot of people upset, magnified himself, glorified himself, did a lot of negative things through all of this stuff. And you know what? If we would have followed the instruction of this verse right here, it certainly would have limited, if not eliminated, this situation. If we would, instead of glorifying the devil, you just could have stood up and said, hey, we know that there's demonic activity here and there's reports of things going on. Let's pray and let's just bind this and go on. The light of the gospel is stronger than anything else. And, you know, if you'd have had that attitude, Satan could not have done the things that he did right here in Colorado Springs with that. And I know that this is happening in other places. We just give the devil too much credit. Now, I am not saying that we ignore him. I am not saying that at all. But I am saying that many times, quote, unquote, Christians who are out to expose the darkness are actually promoting the darkness. They are exposing the darkness to the rest of the world. They're fostering the darkness. If, if it wasn't for the Christians, much of this stuff would never have gotten anywhere. I know that, again, I've, I've seen circulars, uh, things passed through the body of Christ for the last 15 years. This one thing about Madeline Murray O'Hare, who uh, they say, you know, is the one that got prayer out of the public schools that she's now petitioning that all Christians get kicked off of radio and television. And she's got this petition before the Congress now. And so sign this petition and send it in. This thing, I've seen it going around for the last 15 years. I have checked it out. It is not true. There never was a petition like this. And every time you sign something like that and send it in, it actually makes a fool out of the Christians. That's where some people get this idea of the right-wing Christians that are so, uh, you know, they, they don't have any intelligence at all and they're st because of stupid things like this. Christians fall for it and just sign this up and send it in. And what it does, it actually takes away our clout. It actually makes us look like we aren't informed and people tend to start ignoring us, etc. And I have heard, I don't know this to be true, but I have heard that those petitions actually are started by an atheist group to embarrass and make the Christians look stupid. And you know what? The Christians get up and start talking about all the things that the devil is doing. It's free publicity is the way that they look at it, and it uh, just causes confusion and discredits the Christians, etc. You see how we just... I mean, it's amazing how Christians love to jump on the negative information and they will. There's talk shows, Christian talk shows that do nothing but get up and just glorify the things that the devil is doing. Again, you can expose the devil without glorifying the devil. There is a right and a wrong way to do this. And I really believe that much, much, much of what is being done in the body of Christ today is the wrong way of doing it. We need to follow this admonition and not glorify the devil. It, it Count it a shame to even speak of the things that the ungodly are doing in secret. Don't bring the stuff out into the open. Don't expose your kids to all this stuff. 
You know, I was brought up in a situation where I'd heard of such things as homosexuality and prostitution and perversion. And, and uh, you know, I, I knew that those things existed, but it wasn't spoken. Of. It wasn't glorified. I didn't have it depicted. I didn't have somebody sit down and give me a class and instruct me in all of these things so that I could recognize it when it came. And you know what? As a result, I never was tempted with it. You can't be tempted with things that you don't think about. But today, man, we just feel it our God-given responsibility to inform everybody of every demonic, ungodly, perverse thing. And we give them every bloody detail. And then when our kids are tempted, we wonder, where did they get that from? Lots of times they got it straight from the Christians glorifying the devil. In the next verse, verse 13, it says, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. And again, this is just following up on walking away from ungodliness, coming out of the darkness and into the light. And we need to let our light so shine in such a way that it reproves these unfruitful works of darkness. An association, any type of relationship where we aren't free to give our witness, I believe that we need to seriously evaluate whether that is God's will or not, because that's that's not a positive situation. You may be in some situation like when I was drafted, that I honestly could not change the circumstance. I just couldn't go AWOL. I certainly didn't feel like that was right. And so I had to do the best that I could in that situation. But with very few exceptions, I mean, if you're in a job situation where you have no freedom, you know, there are some people, I actually heard of a guy up in Denver who had a Bible on his desk, a teacher, and they expelled him or were going to expel him from school or, or, you know, I don't know that expel is a correct word, but they were going to uh, suspend him from being a teacher because he couldn't do that kind of stuff. He couldn't have a Bible. He couldn't mention the Lord. He couldn't do anything. Now, in the classroom, uh, you know, you can sit there and you can mention all kinds of demonic stuff. You can quote any source of Buddhism and stuff like that, but you can't mention Christianity. That's not like fair. That's not fair. It's not like an even playing field. I would say under normal circumstances that, man, you shouldn't be in a situation where it's stacked against you to where you have no ability to give a witness at all, and yet the ungodliness has all of the ability to vent their stuff. Uh, the only exception I would make to that is that I just don't think that we can forsake the public school system. I don't believe it's a godly system. I certainly would advocate Christians putting their kids into a Christian school to where they could be taught godly values and, and, and told the truth instead of told the lies that they're told in public school. But I don't believe that we can just forsake the public schools and turn them over to the devil. If we do, we're going to be turning over those students that go through there. So I would say under normal circumstances, not to be in a situation like that, but it is so vital that we have an outreach into the public schools. I believe some Christians are called to be in there and, man, give it as the best shot that you can. I mean, operate within the confines that you can and and give your testimony. But I hope everybody understands what I'm saying. These scriptures are telling us that we need to be verbal with our witness. We need to reprove the ungodliness. We should not glorify the ungodliness. We shouldn't foster it. We shouldn't promote it. We shouldn't even speak of things that are done to them in secret. But rather, we need to reprove it, shine the light of God on it, etc. In verse 14, he says, Wherefore he saith, Arise thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. You know, I cannot find an Old Testament scripture that this is actually quoting. I can find in Isaiah chapter 60, 
verses 1 through 3, and I've printed those uh, scriptures on our printed materials so that you can see them, but it's kind of a paraphrase of those verses. So it may be that Paul here is paraphrasing Isaiah chapter 60. I'm not sure. But the principle that he's talking about here is that you need to turn from this ungodliness. That would be talking about uh, rise thou that sleepest and arise from the dead and Christ shall give thee light. In other words, light and darkness come from two opposite sources. They are opposite directions from each other. They're diametrically opposed to each other. A person who is persisting in darkness cannot be walking in the light. A person who walks in the light cannot be persisting in darkness. I mean, they're, they're, you're headed in opposite directions. So what this is saying is that we should turn from this ungodliness. We should turn from all of this darkness and walk towards the light. They are in opposite directions. You cannot do both effectively at the same time. In verse 15, the conclusion of this is, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise circumspectly comes from a Greek word that means to look around and take heed. What this is talking about is that because of the prior things that he was saying about the ungodliness and the evil, the darkness around us, and that we need to reprove it, it needs to be made manifest, he's just basically saying that you need to really take heed. You need to pay attention because we are in a dark world, there is a lot of evil out there, and you need to walk in a way that that uh, is consistent with that. You know, it's it's basically trying to portray the same thing, that when I was in the United States, I grew up with a certain attitude of security, of safety. And then I remember when I got drafted and went to Vietnam, and the very first night that I was in Vietnam, we flew in very early in the morning, and I mean, it was dark. We got out, went into our barracks. I tried to go to sleep. And did you know that the bombs were were landing so close to us, and there were so many of them, that our bunks were actually bouncing with the explosion of these bombs. And you know what happened? All of a sudden, I began to recognize I was in a war zone. And it began to dawn on me that people were shooting at me. Now, I had, in basic, I had been around explosions, but I still had this mindset that I was in a friendly land, I was being trained, I was under the protection of our government, and even though there were explosions, and when we were out on our uh, bivouac, you know, and we were under training, there were explosions and things that rocked me sometimes while I was asleep, but I knew it was a training exercise. When I was in Vietnam, it dawned on me this was not training. This was the real thing. People were shooting at us, and those bombs were dropping close enough that my bed was actually shaking. And you know what? All of a sudden, I began to start walking circumspectly. I began to start taking heed. I began to start realizing. I mean, I changed an attitude. Everything about me, my attention level increased I no longer was, uh, you know, tempted with some of the distractions. I mean, I was focused. I realized I needed to be focused. I, it was like walking through a minefield. I couldn't just meander and walk any way I wanted to. I needed to watch every place I stepped, I, I put my foot. And I believe that that's what this scripture is talking about when it says, see that you walk circumspectly. In other words, we are in a war zone, a spiritual war zone. Satan is out there, and not only is he out to get you, but he's out to stop your light from shining so that he can get others, so that he can destroy them. Because of this, we need to watch what we're doing. You need to recognize that every minute counts. You don't need to walk as a fool. The term fool is a term that describes an unbeliever. Don't walk like an unbeliever, aimlessly, having no purpose to your life, 
A Christian should get up in the morning and recognize not only do you have a purpose for your life, but God has a purpose for other people, and you may be the vehicle that God uses to reach them. We need to get up every day recognizing that today needs to count. It needs to be um, a day that we use to advance the kingdom of God. You need to recognize Satan is out to get you and that you need to be on guard. That's what these scriptures are talking about. Don't walk like a lost man, just stumbling through life. Walk with purpose. And the next verse says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. You know, I believe that you could interpret this redeeming the time two ways. It could be talking about make full use of the time. In other words, take advantage of every moment because it's just a short time. But also through our light shining, you, we can actually redeem or change the times that we live in. We can change the world that we live in, our circumstances, through our impact on other people, through us speaking and living the Christian life. We can actually change our little corner of the world. So in that sense, we can redeem it. We can also redeem it by taking full advantage of the time that we have. And either way, I believe, is appropriate. But it's just it's continuing the same thing, saying that, man, the days are evil. We need to redeem the time, make full use of the time, redeem this, the uh, lifetime that we live in, our generation. Use it. Turn it towards God. In verse 17, he says, Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And again, in the context, he's talking about all of this ungodliness around us. We need to recognize we're in a war zone. We need to live with purpose. We need to redeem the time. We need to have a, a focus for our life, a direction. And in the midst of saying all of this, he says, don't be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Did you know that before you can ever really impact your life or the lives of others around you, you've got to find God's will God's purpose for your life. In other words, how in the world can you point other people towards a purpose if you yourself are purposeless? You need to know God's purpose, God's will, God's plan for your life. And then you need to share that with other people and help them find their destiny, their purpose. You know, this scripture is a direct command not to be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Some people do not believe that you can really understand the will of the Lord. There's a lot of people that honestly are living their life just kind of doing their own thing and hoping that it's consistent with what God wants. They'll pray prayers like, Lord, here's what we're doing. We're asking you to bless it. But you know, I really do not believe that that is a godly attitude. We shouldn't do our own thing and just hope that it's of God. The scriptures teach us in a lot of places, that God wants to reveal his purpose and his plan for every single person to us. I believe that God is obligated to do that, obligated of his own free will. He chose to do that. In Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, these scriptures have changed my life. And it says in Romans 12, 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God wants to reveal his perfect will to us, and he told us exactly what to do to get it revealed. It also says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, he says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. God has a purpose. 
thoughts, plans for our life. He has a perfect plan for every person. And we need to find that. You can never reach your full potential until you find out exactly what it is that God has for you to do. And this is a direct command. When it comes to walking circumspectly, when it comes to redeeming the time, when it comes to reproving ungodliness and letting your light shine before man, before you could ever do that effectively, you've got to find exactly what it is that God wants you to do. You've got to know God's purpose, God's plan for your life. You've got to get where God wants you to be and get right in the middle of it. I tell you, there is nothing that is as great as knowing that you are in the center of God's will. I tell you, that is just paramount for your own safety and peace and also for your witness to others. You've got to know that. There's a lot I could say on this, but I just wanted to point out here that he told us not to be unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Not understanding God's will is not wise. Some people think, well, I have no responsibility for that. It's just totally up to God to reveal his will. No, God has a perfect plan. I believe that there is this intuitive knowledge on the inside of every single person. But there are things that we have to do to draw out that revelation. And uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 will expand on that. In verse 18, it says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. As it's talking here in context about walking circumspectly, redeeming the time, and then it mentions you've got to know God's will, it immediately mentions being filled with the Spirit. You know, this is an amazing fact, but there is no way you can walk circumspectly. There is no way you can redeem the time. There is no way you can find God's will for your life or fulfill God's will for your life without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Christian life is not hard to live. It's impossible to live on your own. God did not give us a new life and then expect us to live it out of our own ability. But rather, he literally imparts his supernatural Holy Spirit and the power, the anointing that comes from the Holy Spirit into the life of a believer. And for an effective, victorious Christian life, you have to let the Holy Spirit live through you. And again, there's so much that could be said about this. I've got a tape series on the baptism of the Holy Ghost, a tape entitled, you know, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I've got one on why speak in tongues, etc. You've got to have the power, the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus didn't do any miracles, no recorded ministry until he was filled, anointed with the Holy Spirit at the age of 30. Now, he was still God. He still had all of the power and the nature, the character of God. But he didn't release any of that, not recorded in Scripture, until he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. There are many Old Testament Scriptures that show people the Holy Spirit coming upon them, and then they had supernatural strength, supernatural wisdom, supernatural ability. Uh, Jesus told his disciples that you will be filled with power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and that was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. You have to have the empowering of the Holy Spirit to have an effective life, to really walk circumspectly. I mean, you just cannot understand and discern the signs of the times just in carnal wisdom. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he imparts unto you supernatural wisdom. You just have an, a supernatural understanding, a knowing about things that you cannot know without the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, there was a man one time who had two earned doctorates, and yet he's now a friend of mine, 
And uh, he used to listen to me on the radio, and it would bless him, the things that I said, but at the same time, it would make him angry because here he was with doctorate degrees, and here I was. He could tell I was unlearned and ignorant by my speech and stuff, and yet I was saying things that he had never thought of, and yet when he heard it, he it bore witness in his heart, and he'd say, yes, that's what the Scripture's saying. But it made him mad that how could an ignorant person know this when here he was schooled and educated, and he didn't know it. And, you know, he finally came to realize that what it was, it was the Holy Spirit that imparted that knowledge. You know, the Holy Spirit will give you supernatural wisdom and understanding. I mean, the benefits of the Holy Spirit are not only power, but it's understanding, it's revelation, it's peace, it's comfort, and on and on and on it goes. I tell you, the Christian life must be lived under the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So here in this 18th verse, it, it's a command, really. This is not a suggestion. This is not an option. It's a command. In the same way that it says not to be drunk with wine, but to, in the same way that you shouldn't be drunk with wine, you should be filled with the Holy Ghost. It's not just a suggestion that you don't get drunk. This is a command. And in the same way, it's not a suggestion that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There is an initial filling. There's a, a one-time experience where the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And I do not believe that that is synonymous with salvation. And some people will argue with this. Uh, you know, it's important here that you don't get hung up on somatics. What I'm saying is that the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the empowering of the Holy Spirit, is a separate experience from salvation. Now, they can be received simultaneously. You know, to me, it doesn't matter whether a person says that the Holy Spirit's in you, with you, or whatever. But as long as a person recognizes that there is it, there is a difference between being born again and then an experience where the Holy Spirit literally takes control of you. That's the point that I'm getting across. You can see it in the life of Jesus. You can see it in the life of the disciples. They were born again, but they were empowered later on. You can see it in the uh, eighth chapter of the book of Acts. You can see it in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, the 19th chapter of Acts, on and on. Again, if you'd get these tapes, it would go into that. But there is a difference between being born again, having Jesus come and live in you, be a born-again Christian, and then being empowered, anointed with the Holy Spirit. They are two separate experiences. They do not have to be separated by months or years. It could come just instantaneously with salvation, but it would have to be with the understanding that it is a separate experience. You need to recognize that it's not just something that automatically happens. There are born-again Christians who are not empowered and anointed, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so... That's what Paul is talking about right here. And then even the people who got filled with the Holy Spirit, like on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 4, you can see in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts that they prayed, and once again they were filled with the Spirit. So there is an initial experience where you receive the infilling of the Holy Spirit, but it's like we're leaky vessels. This filling to where the Holy Spirit is not only in your born-again spirit, but it begins to start dominating your emotions and your thoughts and, and manifesting himself through your actions and in your body. That ex The outward expression of this wanes. It comes and goes based on how we respond to God and circumstances, etc. And so 
even after you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes and will never leave you nor forsake you, you need to be refilled at different times. And the Holy Spirit, once again, floods through your emotions, floods through your mind and through your body and uh, dominates and controls you. So there are more than one fillings, but there is this initial feeling that is a very dramatic experience. And I believe that in most cases, uh, most people know exactly when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Speaking in tongues is a part of this. It is not the only thing that's involved with being filled with the Spirit, but it is one of the gifts of the Spirit, and it should operate in the lives of those who are baptized in the Holy Ghost. I tell you, I've got a tape entitled Why Speak in Tongues that is very, very powerful. I know that there's probably some people getting this tape who have heard about the Holy Spirit. You don't necessarily have anything against it, but you don't understand it, and you probably have a question about, is it necessary to speak in tongues? What is the purpose of speaking in tongues? Well, I've got that tape that I'd encourage you to get hold of, because it really is an important gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, he says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, verse 19 is a part of the same sentence that verse 18 is. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit. One of the ways to be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, dominated by the Spirit, all of those words I believe would be appropriate, is to speak unto yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Do you know praise and worship is a very important part of being filled with the Spirit? Personally, you know, I drive about an hour it's actually about 45, 50 minutes one way to my office from my house. And when I'm by myself, when Jamie and I aren't coming in together, I can guarantee you during that time, I nearly always have on a teaching tape or a praise and worship tape, and I'm worshiping the Lord, and I'm singing to the Lord. And I tell you, it is one of the important ways, I believe, of keeping yourself full of the Holy Spirit. When you're operating in praise and worship, I mean, if if they're godly songs, if they aren't just old religious stuff, but if you are actually praising the Lord, it takes your mind off of the negatives and it puts it onto the positives. It takes your mind off of the problem and puts it onto the answer. And what that does, it just increases faith and it allows the Holy Spirit to flow through you. The scripture says in Psalms chapter 22, it says that God inhabits the praises of his people. And I really believe that as you begin to praise God, that, boy, the anointing of the Holy Spirit flows. That's the uh, reasoning behind the praise and worship that we have in our church services. It's not just a tradition that we do, but it's what the Scripture says to do in Psalms 100. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. As we enter in and start praising the Lord, it takes our attention away from the world and puts it onto God. Then God inhabits those praises. It softens our heart towards God. It makes us receptive to the ministry of the word or the prayer or whatever else is going to happen in the service. And the same thing happens when you're by yourself. I tell you, it's important that we cultivate an attitude of praise and worship, that we be thankful and I tell you, it needs to be done much, much more than what it is. There's some people that the only time they praise the Lord is in church service or something like that. And, and even though that's good, that certainly is not what this scripture is advocating. This didn't even mention church here. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
Some of you may think, well, I'm not much of a singer. I just can't do that. Well, there's no excuse today. With our availability of cassette tapes and uh, CDs and things like this in our cars, Walkmans, there's just no excuse. I guarantee you, you can turn the volume up and you can go to singing and not even hear yourself and think you sound just like that tape that you're listening to. You can praise and worship the Lord, and it is a vital part, a very important part of being filled with the Spirit. It says in verse 20, it says, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And right along with praise and worship goes thanksgiving, being thankful. Did you know that a person who is unthankful is a person who is a very self-centered person? Now, some people may not relate that, but if I had time, you could prove that. I really believe a person who doesn't say thank you to others is a person that is only thinking about themselves. They aren't thinking about the other person. If you are a thoughtful person that is trying to bless someone else, I guarantee you thanksgiving, being thankful, is an important part of blessing other people. When somebody does something for you, say thank you, and you'll find out that that is a vital part of being a blessing to others. So see, a self-centered person doesn't think like that. They're so consumed with themselves, they don't ever say thank you. So if you begin to start praising and worshiping the Lord and being thankful, it will immediately attack this self-centeredness in us, which, man, that has tremendous benefit to get out of being self-centered. So thankfulness is very important, and that's what he's talking about right here. And some people, I believe, have misinterpreted this to teach that God causes every negative thing that comes into our life. And so th there are some people that will take this scripture and actually teach that if, you know, a person dies, that we're supposed to be thankful that they died and go thank God and praise God that they died. If we get a report that we are, we've got cancer and that we're going to die, we need to thank God for that. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about just giving thanks in every situation for all things, I believe that the context of this would uh, preclude that this is talking about all of the things that God is giving you. This is not talking about giving thanks that your daughter was date raped by somebody and that you're supposed to praise God for that. That is not what this is saying. This is not to give thanks that AIDS are running rampant, that we have 10-year-olds that are killing people today and stuff. We aren't supposed to praise God for that. And yet there's some people that try and make this verse say that. That is not what it's saying. It's just simply talking about giving thanks for all of the things that God has brought into our life. And it just amazes me. I mean, I know that some person could take this and says it says to give thanks for all things. That means everything. That means even Hitler. We're supposed to thank God that Hitler came. There was a purpose in the overall plan and desire of God for Hitler and the millions of Jews that were killed. We're supposed to thank God for that. That is not what this scripture is talking about. I believe that it, it just assumes a little bit of common sense on the part of the readers that it's talking about all of the things that God brings into your life. That's a part of being filled with the Spirit is being thankful for the things that God is doing, remembering the good things. The Scripture says in Psalms 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And the reason he told us not to forget is because we will forget if we don't make a deliberate attempt to remember, we need to be thankful. We need to rehearse what God has done in our life. It's an important part. And as you go back and look at the goodness of God, it allows the Holy Spirit to begin to dominate and control you. I mean, it fits perfectly in what he's saying right here. In verse 21, 
He says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, the context of this, again, he's talking to all believers. He's talking about how to overcome evil, how to walk circumspectly, redeem the time, know the will of God, be filled with the Spirit through singing hymns, psalms, spiritual songs, and being thankful, etc. And so he's speaking to every believer when he says, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. In other words, we are supposed to, out of love, yield ourselves to others, give ourselves to others, not be self-centered, but think more about other people, defer to other people, put their wishes, their needs above our own, submit ourselves one to another. This has application to every part of the body of Christ, one to another. But then the verses right after this begin to start talking about marriage relationship, and then it starts dealing with husbands and wives specifically and talking about the wives submitting themselves unto the husbands. And so I believe that it's kind of a transition here in this 21st verse. It's not only talking about every member of the body of Christ submitting themselves unto others and you know, putting the other's needs and desires above your own. But it's also especially true in marriage that there is a submission on both people's parts. It's not just the wives submitting unto the husbands, but there is a submission on the husband's part to the wife, where we literally lay down our life. We love our wife as Christ loved the church. Now, this raises a lot of questions, because when you start talking about submitting, and you talk about authority, especially when you apply it towards marriage, boy, this raises all kinds of emotions and uh, thoughts inside of people because it's been taught so many different ways. I had not got time to go into this. I've got a lot of teaching on the subject of marriage. I have one tape specifically on the subject of submission in marriage, and it's by that tape. The title of the tape is Submission, and you can get that, and it'll go into a lot more detail. But submission has been misunderstood and misapplied. Most people think that when you talk about submission that you are talking about one person being totally dominated and controlled by another, and they see it as an oppressive thing. That is not at all what the Bible talks about submission. Number one, submission is not something that someone else does to you. Now, that's an important statement. In other words, a husband could not take these scriptures that we're about to read here in Ephesians chapter 5 that talk about the husbands being the head and the wives submitting unto the husbands. You cannot take this and go to your wife and say, woman, submit, and you can't make a person submit. Submission is a voluntary act on the part of an individual. Now, you can make a person obey you, like, for instance, a government has laws, and if people disobey it, then they send out the police, they catch you, they arrest you, and and if you are in a serious violation, they'll actually incarcerate you and put you in prison. They make you obey, but the truth is they cannot make you submit. Submission is an attitude of the heart that has to be voluntary. You know, an example of this is I heard a story one time about a preacher who... uh, was preaching a message, and a little kid was on the front row, and he was standing up and doing different things. And finally, the preacher just had it, and he just interrupted his message and yelled at this kid, and he says, Sit down and shut up, (laughs) right in front of the whole church. Boy, that little kid sat down. But then he could be heard to say, as the preacher went on, this little kid says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Well, see, what happened is that preacher got obedience, but he didn't get submission. 
the kid's heart wasn't changed. The kid was not really doing from the heart what he was asked to do. He did it comply. You can put people in prison and make them comply. You can make them obey. You can take them off the streets and punish them, but you can't change their heart. See, that's what submission is. Submission is an attitude of the heart. So a man cannot make a woman submit. You might make her obey. You might physically be able to overpower her and make her do certain things, but you cannot make a person submit. Submission is a voluntary thing. A wife has to choose to submit. You cannot be forced to submit. You can be forced to obey. You can be intimidated, threatened, and on and on. And you might comply and obey, but obedience and submission are two different things. Now, this will also, you know, this is like a stick that, you know, if you had a stick labeled submission, well, both ends of that stick would still be submission, and yet they'd be opposite. They'd be far away from each other. Well, as you talk about submission, there are two extremes here. Submission is something that is voluntary that you have to choose to do. But on the other hand, the other extreme of this is that you can disobey a person's commands, and yet still be in submission. Now, some people don't understand what I'm saying here, but Peter is the one that wrote over in 1 Peter chapter 2 about submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. He said every ordinance. And yet Peter is the very person that in Acts chapter 4, when he was commanded not to speak any more in the name of the Lord, he said boldly to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, you judge yourself, which is right. Should we be, obey God or obey men? He says, we are going to obey God. And he went right back and disobeyed their command. This was his religious and civil authority. He deliberately disobeyed them. And yet Peter is the very one who God used to write over in First Peter chapter 2 about submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Now, some people would think, well, he disobeyed his own command. No, he didn't do what they told him to do, but he did submit. He had a submissive attitude. He did not rebel at their authority. He didn't go to the believers and try and get them to form a mutiny. He didn't try and overthrow the government. He did not become rebellious in his attitude or his actions. But he didn't obey their ungodly command. Now, see, if you bring all of this back to a husband and wife relationship, it is wrong to say that a woman has to obey whatever the man says. That is not what these scriptures are teaching. It is saying that the man is the head of the wife and that the wife should submit. But the scripture teaches us that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. If a man was to tell his wife, I forbid you to go to church, it would be proper for her to say, I will obey God rather than you. But she needs to be careful the way that she does it so that there is not a attitude of rebellion. There needs to be still the submission. The scripture tells us to submit, not necessarily to obey. So see, the proper way to respond, here's the improper way. If a woman was to say, well, you old reprobate, you don't love God, you don't care about anybody but yourself, I'm not going to do what you say. I'll go to church and I'll do what I please. Did you know what? She may have done the right action by going to church, but I guarantee you that is a rebellious attitude that is not a godly thing. That would be an attitude of rebellion. The proper way to respond is to say, honey, I love you and I'll do anything you ask me to do within reason. But I cannot forsake God. I cannot forsake the assembling of myself together. That's what the scripture commands me to do in Hebrews chapter three. I've got to go. But I love you. I want to obey 
and submit, but I have to obey God more than you. Now, see, she expressed her love. She expressed uh, commitment to the man. She was not rebellious. Uh, and so she goes ahead and disobeys, but she actually was in submission. Now, it needs to be qualified here that not every function of the church has to be attended to be able to fulfill the scripture in Hebrews chapter 3 about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. There are some churches that have women's gossip circles, knitting parties, things that are just basically social functions, which there may be some merit to it, but you don't have to attend every one of those to fulfill the scripture about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. You know, it is true that some people, when they got born again, gave themselves so totally to the church and to the Lord that their mate actually lost their mate when they got saved. Now, that's not right. You need to give some time to your family. And you don't have to be there every time the doors are open for every social function, etc. So anyway, there's a lot more I ask you to please get those takes. But I was bringing all of this out because when you start talking about these scriptures concerning marriage, I wanted to bring out that it is prefaced by saying we are supposed to submit ourselves one to another. Submission is not a one-sided thing. I actually had some of my students raise a question to me in one of our interaction groups in school, and they were saying, you know, when I submit my ministry to some pastor here in town to be able to fulfill the scripture about how that, you know, I should have somebody in authority over me. And that's the question that they were raising. And it's a long answer, but basically what I was saying is that I recognize from the scripture that, yes, we are supposed to be in submission one to another. And I believe that all ministries, even a ministry like mine, should be based in a local church. And in principle, yes, I agree with that. And in the past, I've actually done that, and it didn't work out as well as what I think it should. And I basically answered them by saying, no, I would not just go submit myself, submit my ministry, turn the control of it over to someone without them also being submitted to me. In other words, I would not make a total commitment of my ministry to somebody else who wasn't committed to me. I don't think that that's being responsible. And the application of this is to a lot of things. You are supposed to submit yourself to a pastor. But you know what? You can't really submit to a pastor that's not submitted to you. Now, again, there is a headship here. The submission may be greater on the part of the person who is just a member of the congregation than it is on the pastor's part. But the point that I'm getting at is that submission is actually a byproduct of a relationship. You cannot submit to someone that you have no relationship with. It takes time to build relationship. Therefore, submission is not something that you just go and do all of a sudden. I have people write me constantly and say, can I submit my ministry unto you? And I write them back and say, no, you can't. And sometimes they're offended, but the reasoning behind it is that I don't even know this person. To me, they're just a name. There's somebody that maybe I've spoken into their life because they've listened to my tapes or come to my meetings, but I don't know them. And there is no way that it could be a godly type of submission with me having no relationship with them. It takes time. Now, there are a few people who have submitted themselves unto me, but it's because we have relationship. I've accepted that, and I speak into their life, and I have control and authority into their life and ministry, but it's based out of relationship. 
So I, I hope you see the point that I'm making here is that there is a submission on our part to each other as members of the body of Christ. In a marriage relationship, there is a submission one to another, and it's voluntary. I voluntarily submit myself to Jamie. Jamie voluntarily submits herself unto me. And if push comes to shove, and if we just cannot arrive at a consensus of what the Lord's will is, there is a greater submission on Jamie's part to me than there is on me to her. Somebody's got to make a final decision. You cannot have just a total democracy with only two people. You know, you both vote in opposing directions, then there's no action. Somebody's got to have final authority. So that's me, according to the Scripture. The man has the greater authority, and Jamie has voluntarily submitted herself to me on a number of occasions where she wasn't totally convinced but I was. We discussed it. We are submitted to each other. We try and make decisions always in unity. But there are some times that I've decided things, and Jamie has just gone along with it. And so that is what the Scripture teaches here. In verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Here's another point about submission before I go on past this. And that is that sometimes there was a movement back in the... 80s, actually it was in the 70s and the 80s here in the United States, and also from my experience it was over in the United Kingdom, and it was talking about the shepherding movement or the discipleship movement, and they taught submission in a lot of areas about uh, submission in the area of church government, etc., but in the area of marriage and things like this, one of the things that they taught a lot was that women in general were supposed to be subject unto men in general. And an extreme example of this is that when I was only 18 years old, I went to a camp one time, and a woman who had been under that teaching had her car break down, the fuel pump went out, and she began to panic. Her husband wasn't there, and she was responsible for a bunch of us kids that she was taking to this church camp. And I was the oldest person there. I was 18 years old, oldest kid. This woman was about 40. And when she got into this situation, she basically panicked for a little bit, and then she calmed herself, and she says, well, I'm supposed to submit myself unto men. Women are supposed to be submitted unto men, and so you're the oldest man here. It's your responsibility. You take care of it. And I tell you, I was only 18 years old. I didn't know, come here from Sikkim, about fixing a car. I didn't know if this woman had any money. I didn't know anything. She wouldn't give me any information. And you know what? That was not a godly situation. She, it was stupid. That is not what the Scriptures teach. This does not say that women in general submit themselves unto men in general. Women are not inferior to men. Women are not supposed to submit to men. But it is talking about a husband-wife relationship. Women, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. And if you will take the Scriptures, like out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, and out of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and other passages where it talks about women being in submission, not speaking in the church, if you will look closely, you'll find in every situation some reference to the man. Like, for instance, 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about, uh, I suffer not the woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man. Not over men, M-E-N, but over the man talking about a specific man, the context shows that it's the husband. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 refers to the law, saying, as also saith the law, when it talks about women being in submission. 
And you can't find in the law where it talks about women being in submission to men in general. You can find in the law where it talks about the woman being subject to her husband, such as in Genesis chapter 3, where it says it was a curse that the man would rule over the woman. And so in a subtle way, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 brings this same issue in. So when you're talking about submission, you have to talk about marriage relationship or you have to talk about a church government situation or people submitting unto civil authority. But women are not supposed to be in submission unto men in general. That is not what the scriptures teach. This is specifically talking about submission in the context of marriage, that the wives are supposed to submit themselves unto their own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, there is no doubt here that this is using a comparison, an analogy, and it's comparing the wives submitting themselves unto their husbands as the church is submitted unto Christ. And it's talking about the husband being the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And there are a lot of good comparisons here, but I tell you what, you can take this to the degree that if you say that a woman is supposed to submit in absolute, no reservations, perfectly, the exact same way that the church is submitted unto Christ, this comparison is going to break down because the husband is not as pure, as holy, as righteous, as committed as Christ is to his church. Now, again, if you understand that there is a difference between submission and obedience, this makes it a lot easier to understand because this does not mean that the woman has to obey everything that the husband says, but she has to submit. In other words, you can you can disobey with a submitted attitude. You can see that in this verse, and you can yield to that and go through with that. But this is not saying that a woman has to just do every single thing that the husband says in the same way that the church should obey Christ and everything. Let me just give you an example. The reason I'm saying this is because I was actually in a church one time where a woman was born again. Her husband claimed to be born again. I personally doubt if he was. There wasn't much fruit of it. But they both came to church, and this woman was involved in a women's Bible study that taught from this exact passage of Scripture about that the woman should obey the husband or should submit to the husband even as the church does to Christ. And from this, they taught that that woman should do whatever her husband said, not making any distinction between obedience and submission. Well, this woman's husband tried to get her to take dope and commanded her to take dope, said, if you really were a Christian and were submitted unto me, you'd take this dope. And she had rejected doing that. And he was imposing on her to go with him to some of these parties he went to where they actually swapped the wives and they had the wives have sex with any person that was there. And he was commanding her to do this as his wife. And she came to church and brought this question up in a Bible study where they were reading this exact passage of Scripture. And you know what? The women who were teaching that Bible study told that woman that to be consistent with this Scripture, she has to obey that man in everything the same way that the church obeys Christ. They told her, you take the dope, you go commit adultery with these other people, obey your husband, and if you'll do that, the punishment for your sin will come on the husband and not on you because you are in obedience. Now, I believe that probably 99.9% of the people listening to this tape know in your heart that that's wrong. And yet, 
there are some people that try and get that from passages of Scripture like this. This is what I'm speaking against. I'm saying that, yes, a woman should submit herself unto the Lord as the church does unto Christ. But we need to make the distinction that there is a difference between true submission and obedience. You can disobey an ungodly command and yet do it in a submissive way. And we need to recognize that, man, if you have an ungodly, reprobate husband who's trying to get you to do something wrong, this does not mean that you obey that. That's the only point I'm really trying to get across. I'm not trying to diminish that, yes, there should be submission uh, on the part of the wife to the man, but I'm saying that, man, it has been abused. There's a lot of weird things been taught out of this, and that is not what it says. In the latter part of this verse, it says, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. You know, many people here will take this, that this is talking about that the Lord is the savior of the body, talking about his church. And even though that certainly is a true statement, I believe that the last phrase of this 23rd verse is talking about that the husband is the savior of the woman's body. Now, that is offensive to people at first because when we use the term Savior, we always apply it to the Lord Jesus. But you'll find over in the book of Titus, if you go over there and look this up in Titus chapter 2, when the word Savior is used there, it's capitalized. And I know that some people say, now wait a minute, in the Greek there are no such thing as capital letters and lowercase letters. That's only an English equivalent. I recognize that, but the equivalent of capital letters is in the Greek in the context. When you read something in context, it designated whether it was talking about something, whether it's a proper name, etc., all those kind of things. It's there. And even though it's expressed a different way in the Greek, it is expressed in the English by capital letters and small letters. I believe that there is a purpose to that. And you'll find that over in the book of Titus, when it's talking about Jesus as being our Savior, it's capitalized. Over in the Old Testament, you'll find out that this term Savior is used referring to some of the judges, that it ra- God raised up a Savior unto the nation of Israel. And then it'll talk about Gideon or one of the other judges. The term Savior literally means a protector, a defender, a deliverer. And when you apply it to the Lord Jesus, then it's talking about deity. It's talking about divine, and it's capitalized. But in this instance, I believe that what it's saying is that the husband is the Savior of the wife's body here. What it is, it's an explanation about why the wife should submit herself unto the husband. It's because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he, the husband, is the savior of the woman's body. God gave the man a responsibility to be a protector, a defender, a deliverer for the woman. And if the woman rebels at that, then she has to start defending and protecting her own self. In other words, the man was given for a covering. There are, there are responsibilities given to the man. And I know that when I get to teaching on this in the 90s, that you know a lot of people think that this is chauvinistic and they don't like this kind of teaching. They think that I'm totally off base, that the Scripture is wrong in these categories, that we need to update it for our enlightenment, etc. But I tell you, the Word of God is not out of date. And when it tells us that the man is the head of the woman and that there are certain roles assigned to a man and certain roles assigned to a woman, it's true. I don't care how our society changes. God made men and women different, not only in their physical anatomy, but in their emotions, in their character, in their makeup. And a man is intended to be the protector. I guarantee you it's natural. It's still natural today. As much as 
the ERA movement in Hollywood and political correctness and all of these things are trying to change it. I guarantee you, if you were starting to be mugged, if somebody came against you, the man would still tend to step forward. Now, of course, there's variations. There's some guys that don't have any backbone, etc. But I'm saying, as a rule, you'll find out that if a man and a woman were walking down an alley and somebody tried to rob them, the man would come to the defense. He would try and be the deliverer, the protector, the defender. You know why? Because God made the man the head of the woman to be the savior, the deliverer, the protector, the defender of the woman. The man is given responsibility to protect the woman. It says over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says that if a man doesn't provide for his own, especially for those of his own household, he is worse than an infidel and hath denied the faith. And that's talking about providing finances. God gave the role of being the financial provider to the man. He's supposed to provide, protect, and deliver the woman. God gave that responsibility to the man. Does that mean that a woman cannot, should not work, that it's ungodly, it's sin if she works? No, that's not what it means. If you read Proverbs chapter 31, it talks about a virtuous woman, and this woman got up early, she worked, she bought a field, she planted things, she sowed, she took goods to the market. A woman, you know, in Scripture days could work, but it meant that the burden, the responsibility for the financial provision fell on the man's shoulder. Now, if the woman wants to participate, you know, I'm not going to get into all of that, but I'm saying that the responsibility is the man's, not the woman's. And I believe that that's what it's talking about here when it's talking about that the man is the head of the wife. Some people, again, I believe here's an abuse of this, that some people have taught that the man is a spiritual head of the woman, and I don't believe that that's what this is talking about. I've actually heard it taught before that a woman cannot prosper spiritually beyond her husband. Observation would tell you that that's not true. There's a lot of women who are much more mature in the Lord than what their husbands are, but there's some people who will take this and say that the man is like the high priest and the woman can rise no higher than the man and that a woman is bound to the spiritual equivalency of her husband, etc. That is not what this is talking about. I believe it's talking about physical matters, that the husband was given to be the head of the wife over physical matters. In the spiritual realm, there is neither male nor female. A woman can relate to God just exactly the same as a man can. She does not have to go through a man. I actually had a woman one time come into one of my churches based on this passage of Scripture, a misapplication of it under this discipleship teaching. She was single, and she would not leave town without coming and asking my permission. She would not make a decision on buying something or doing She treated me, in a sense, like a husband, because since she didn't have a physical husband, she looked at me, her pastor, as being her spiritual head. And she came to me and asked me decisions on what car she should buy, what house she should rent. Could she leave town? Could she do this? And I just told her, I said, look, I'm not accepting this responsibility. I said, that is not what this scripture teaches. I am not your head. It's talking about that the husband is the head of the wife in the sense that he is the savior of the body over physical, natural things. A woman is not under the spiritual authority and control of a man in the physical realm. Husbands and wives, the man is given the role of being the protector, the deliverer, the provider. And that's what this is talking about when it says that the man is the head of the wife. He is the savior of the body. In verse 24, it says, therefore, as the church is subject 
unto Christ. So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And again, I believe that this is a true statement, but you need to understand that there is a difference between submission and obedience. This does not mean that a woman has to obey anything that an ungodly husband says. But it is saying that there should, the woman should be subject. It does say over in First Peter chapter 3, Peter was talking, and he says that the wives should submit themselves unto their husbands so that if any husband is not obeying the word, he may without the word be won by beholding the chaste conversation of the wife. Some translations will say that he may without a word be won as he beholds her actions. You know, the very context of that, some people will teach that, see, that woman is supposed to do whatever that man says, and that will win him to the Lord. Well, now, how could he behold her chaste conversation if she was out doing the ungodly things he was commanding her to do? See, the very context of that shows that she is not going to submit to ungodliness. She's going to live a godly life, and that that will be a thing that will speak to her husband and help bring him around. There is nothing in Scripture that tells a woman that she's got to go out and commit adultery, that she's got to sleep around with somebody else, take dope, do anything that is contrary to what God's Word says under the pretense of I'm obeying my husband as the church obeys Christ. That is not what this passage is saying. It is saying that we are supposed to submit ourselves, wives are supposed to submit themselves unto their husbands, but they can do that in a way that they don't obey any ungodly commands. And if you are in a marriage where you have a godly husband, well, then, praise God, it makes it even that much easier. If you are in a relationship where he's also submitting himself unto you, well, then, really, this is no problem. We should be able to submit ourselves. And if it comes to just a matter of opinions, if it comes to preferences, not anything that is a doctrinal issue, it's not a heaven or hell issue, it's not a matter of sin or righteousness, it's just that you don't really feel like doing something and he asks you to do it, well, then the Scripture says, submit yourself. And I believe that that also implies obedience unless it is a direct disobedience to God. We should Submission should include obedience unless that obedience would be in contradiction or contrary to something God told us to do. I really believe that people have complicated this. It's not as complicated as what people make it sound. In verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You know, that command right there is just awesome. You could spend days, weeks, years talking about this, about the degree, the manner in which God loved us. He loved us before we loved him. He loved us while we were unlovely. There's a lot of husbands that say, well, I'd love my wife if she was like Christ. Well, this didn't tell you that. It says, and in the same way that Christ loved us and gave himself for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the way that a husband should lay down his life. You know, the Lord took our blame for us. He took our punishment. Husbands, we should take the punishment, the blame of our wives. I tell you, I see this happening a lot that people gloat over the failure of their mate. When their mate fails, boy, they let them have it. You know, a godly husband would cover their wives and take their blame and say, it's my fault. You know, if she made a mistake, it's my fault. And somebody might say, well, it isn't my fault. She did this totally on her own. Well, it wasn't God's fault either for what we did, and yet he took our sin and took our blame and took our punishment. And the Scripture's admonishing us to love our wives the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. 
You know, if we would just follow these instructions right here, if husbands would love their wives to the degree that they literally would take their shame, take their blame, take their punishment, and then if wives would respect their husbands to the degree that they would yield unto them and submit, and as much as possible that submission would imply obedience unless it was direct disobedience to God. If we would just follow these instructions, you know, marriages would work. Marriage doesn't fail today. It's people that fail to take God's Word and function in it the way they should. Marriage is a godly institution. It's just people who are failing to function in the marriage according to God's instructions. I'm out of time. I know we're right in the midst of this teaching, but we'll have to continue this next time. We'll start in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net, and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.